right, so similar to past weeks in this series, I had you open up to a passage of scripture that we're not actually gonna dive into for a few minutes. Um, so I want you to hold your place in Proverbs 14 because we have to lay a bit of groundwork here for, for where we're going. We'll get there soon enough. Um, but before we dive into the deadly sin of anger or wrath, it's important right out of the gate to, to get us all on the same page in articulating, and many of you know this already, that not all anger is a vice. Psalm chapter seven, verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Every day. Indignation meaning anger with the wicked. There's not a day that, that goes by that God does not feel indignation. Or how about Romans 1:18? if we wanna go New Testament here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's a righteous anger that, that we see on display in the life of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, lest we buy into the notion or the lie that the God of the Old Testament is, is a God of anger and the God of the New Testament is a different God. No, Jesus uh, reveals to us in his various encounters with the scribes and Pharisees, Mark chapter three, things like this. And he looked around at them, at the Pharisees with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. The sinless Jesus was filled at times with righteous indignation, meaning that anger is not always a vice. In fact, not only did Jesus uh, express righteous indignation in his first coming, but Jesus will someday return to set all things right the day of his second coming, a day the apostle Paul says, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses seven and eight, a day when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. That there are times when anger is justified, which is why Paul could say, Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. John Chrysostom, uh, one of the early church fathers once said it this way, he who is not angry when he has cause to be, sins. That, that some of us could stand to be a little more indignant about things that grieve the heart of God, things that make God righteously angry. And at the same time, I think it's probably safe to say that most of our anger, if we're honest, it doesn't tend to fall into the category of righteous indignation. Rather, it tends to be uh, something of an expression of that deadly vice that's plagued the world since the fall of man. Now, there's never been a time when God's people didn't need a sermon on anger. After all, uh, think about this. The, the first sibling story in all of scripture, it's a murder story. The story of Cain and Abel, the outworking of which has been much of the same in every culture and every generation throughout human history. Some of us, bottle it up until we eventually uh, explode. Others of us let it out on the regular. None of us is without anger, the kind of anger that grieves the heart of God, the kind of anger that the book of Proverbs associates with foolishness. Listen to these verses. Proverbs 14, 17, here we are. The verse I had you open up to, we'll read it and then we'll be on to many others in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 14, 17 says, a man of quick temper acts foolishly and a man of evil devices is hated. 
Proverbs 14, 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 29, 11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. That the quick-tempered person, according to the book of Proverbs, is a fool, one who lacks wisdom, one who lacks understanding. It's, it's quite the rebuke for those of us who have serious anger issues, right? Nobody likes to be labeled a fool. That might even provoke some anger in and of itself. Worse than that, lest we think that anger issues because we feel them within only affect us, Proverbs also tells us the quick-tempered person has a damaging effect on his or her community, even the community that we call the church. Proverbs 15, 18 A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Or how about Proverbs 29, 22? A man of wrath stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression. That a lack of restraint born out of anger can do a lot of damage, not only to, to oneself, but to others. Causing strife, creating contention, fanning discord into flame and failing to exercise restraint. It's of such a grave concern that the book of Proverbs warns us not to befriend those with anger issues, lest we become like them ourselves. Proverbs 22, verses 24 and 25. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Right? Spend, spend time with angry people, and over time, you'll, you'll become an angry person yourself. We become like that uh, which we behold and which we befriend. The sins of not only our fathers becoming our own, but, but our friends as well. So that not only does iron sharpen iron, but anger replicates anger. And just like the sins of pride, sloth, envy, greed, so too the, the sin of anger puts us on a path to destruction. Lady Folly inviting us to, to sit at her disgruntled table, her angry table, to raise a glass and to toast our own death. Proverbs 19, 19. A man of great wrath will pay the penalty, for if you deliver him, you will only have to do it again. Perhaps more explicit, Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. Here it is, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, Paul says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's heavy. The, the great irony here is, is that the penalty for the wrathful is the wrath of God. Jesus says as much in, in his greatest sermon ever preached. We looked at it a few years back, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter five, verse 22. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You've heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you 
Jesus isn't correcting the the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures as as though the Mosaic covenant had no concern with the inner disposition of of a person. He's correcting the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees there who had established this code of morals, this code of of regulations that went far beyond the scriptures and had managed to miss the law's heart-piercing demand by way of of insulated rules. Jesus is declaring here in Matthew 5 what the kingdom looks like, what the outworking of the kingdom looks like. It's one thing not to murder. It's an altogether different thing to have a, a right and loving attitude toward those who bear God's image. I find this fascinating. If you, if you go to Ephesians chapter four, verse 30, Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the third person of the Godhead who indwells you as a Christian. What's the very next thing that Paul says? Very next verse, verse 32 of Ephesians, or 31 of Ephesians 4. Don't grieve the spirit of God, and by that I mean, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Verse 32, that that makes the spirit happy when we're kind to one another, when we're tenderhearted, when we're forgiving of one another as opposed to the the grieving of the spirit through bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. Most of us, I mean, we've talked about this before, but most of us are gonna make it through today without murdering someone. I bet we we bat a thousand there, right? The outside of the cup will be clean by the end of the day. But, But what about the inside? That's what Jesus comes after. Unrighteous anger rooted in pride, contempt that belittles the other. The Heidelberg Catechism says it this way, by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, desire of revenge, and that he regards all of these as murder. It might be the hand that controls the knife, murder, but the tongue is the rudder that steers the whole ship. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. With it, James 3, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And yet, if, if it weren't convicting enough already, uh, we don't even have to speak to find ourselves condemned. Herman Bovink in his Reformed Dogmatics, I know you've all probably read this week, he says, uh, Jesus says that not just the deed, but even the first upsurge of illegitimate anger, even if not expressed in a single word, made people liable to judgment. Our apostle Paul says in Romans three, all have fallen short of the glory of God. The anger and contempt that we harbor in our hearts condemning us apart from Jesus Christ. At this point, you're you're meant to to feel the, the weight of, oh, the glorious gospel. Isn't it sweet? The good news of the person and finished work of Jesus Christ who stooped down into the angry slums of human history that he might live a perfect life of meekness and patience and self-control in our place, only then to, to bear the sins of our unrighteous anger in his body on the tree, down to the red light you got angry with when you got stopped by it this morning. 
Christ died for that. Counted angry and contentious so that, that you and I, the angry and contentious, might be counted merciful and meek. I mean, it, it's overwhelming to, to think that Jesus brought redemption to the sinfully angry and wrathful by bearing the righteous wrath of God on behalf of angry, wrathful sinners like you and me. A couple of ways it's been worded in books of old, so to speak. John Murray, uh, The Atonement, he says, the doctrine of propitiation, which means the wrath-bearing aspect of Jesus' work on the cross, the doctrine of propitiation is precisely this, that God loved the objects of his wrath, the world, so much that he gave his own son to the end that he, by his blood, should make provision for the removal of his wrath. It was Christ so to deal with the wrath that the loved would no longer be the objects of wrath and love would achieve its aim of making the children of wrath the children of God's good pleasure. Or Leon Morris, in a book by the same name, God loves the right, the holy, and therefore he is in vigorous opposition to every evil. But because God loves, he provides the way whereby his beloved are delivered from the wrath that would otherwise engulf them. The gospel means good news. You feel it this morning that, that there is no wrath for the sinfully wrathful in Christ, that there is no fury for the sinfully furious in Christ. If you're, if you're not a Christian, this is it. I implore you to turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, to enter the house of wisdom and live, to use that Proverbs 9 poetic language. And if you are a Christian, again, Christ died not only to secure our forgiveness, but also our spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience that we might know true, deeper, lasting happiness, namely in the God who designed us to be happy in him. And that begins and you've already gotten a taste of it this morning with the reminder of who we are in Christ. That unlike the, the pagan religions of this world, we don't have to live under the fear of God's righteous anger. It's been dealt with forever in Jesus. God's not waiting to zap you with lightning bolts, right? That is pervasive across the American South. People believe that God looks at them that way, even though they are united to Christ by faith. He's not chomping at the bit, waiting for you to get on his bad side. That when God looks at you, he, he no longer sees a sinner destined for wrath. In Christ, God's wrath toward you has been replaced with God's good pleasure and favor. There is no such thing as God's bad side for those who are in Christ. Ephesians 2, verses one through seven. We read it several times a year because it's just so good. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were underneath the righteous indignation of God and the condemnation that comes with that. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, church. 
He raised us up with him, Paul says, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show, listen to this, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's how God feels about you. If you're a Christian, you are no longer a child of wrath. Because Jesus has absorbed God's wrath on behalf of sinfully angry people like you and me, God now desires to show us, Paul says, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. Try to measure it. You can't. A grace that, that changes us from the outside. Jesus understands this. He knows. And, and not just our emotions, but the deepest motivators and loves beneath our emotions. This just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Right? It, it's one thing to, to look at the behavior of murder. Jesus says, no, I wanna go a little deeper than that. And I wanna look at the, the emotion of anger that we would have toward an image bearer. There's actually something underneath that emotion as well, that anger is, is simply a check engine light in some, in some extent, revealing a, a, something deeper below the surface of our hearts. It's, it's a reaction that comes when we encounter or experience something that in our estimation is unacceptable, something that, that maybe we can't fix, something that we can't let go of. And God cares deeply about the root that which is situated, situated underneath our anger. Coming back to that story of Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter four, verse three, says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Cain was very angry, there it is, and his face fell. And notice what, what the Lord said in the midst of that expressed anger. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? Why? There's always something underneath the emotion. And it comes down to, at its deepest level, the, the object or objects of, of our affection. In other words, anger is a worship issue. Jonathan Parnell, in his chapter of that book, Killjoys, as he writes on the vice of anger, of wrath, he says, anger is how we respond to whatever threatens someone or something we care about. How we perceive and respond to reality has to do with what we value. Anger is love in motion to protect the object of our love. If we wanna know what we have to be angry about, we should look to the objects of our affection. And if we wanna know when anger is sinful, we look for how our loves have become distorted. He goes on to say, because we interpret reality fundamentally as lovers and because threats to what we love exist at every turn, reasons to be angry emerge everywhere all the time. Sinful anger happens when we misperceive reality as unacceptable, when we are so blinded by our self-consumed loves that we want to annihilate anything that doesn't serve us. Sinful anger, he says, happens when instead of imitating God, we try to play God by assuming the right to draw the lines, defining what should or should not be. 
In sinful anger, we respond in a manner disproportionate to the facts, forcing everyone around us to interpret the world on our terms based on what we love most, which is too often the object in the mirror. That underneath sinful behavior is sinful emotion and underneath sinful emotion is distorted love. So that true spirit-empowered sin-killing obedience is about so much more than behavior modification. This is where the church has missed the boat far too often. That the outworking of God's grace in the life of a Christian isn't simply stop being angry or be angry less often. It's God's question to Cain, why? Why are you angry? What, what, dis, what distorted love is situated underneath your sinful anger? This is where I think some of the, the language that, uh, that we use of, of root idols in the human heart can, can be helpful. As we talk about the root idols of comfort and control and power and approval, I mean, let me just give some examples and maybe some of these will, will resonate with you. I think some of us can be led to anger, uh, driven underneath the surface of that emotion by a root idol of approval that perhaps would manifest itself in certain ways like, uh, I don't know, not being invited to a social gathering and feeling like you're on the outside of that. And all of a sudden you have anger towards people who are on the inside of that circle when you weren't. Or maybe you're on the inside of the circle and someone new got invited in and now the concentrated approval that you felt has now been dispersed by adding one more person to that inner, inner circle. Or maybe it happens in the workplace as someone else gets a promotion and, and you feel less than because you weren't the one looked at and offered that promotion and now you're angry. You're angry at your boss, you're angry at, at that coworker. And then for some of us, maybe it's a root idol of control. And things happen that take control out of our hands, be it maybe a financial situation of distress where whatever that line that we're comfortable with in our bank balance, uh, we, we find ourselves below that. And now all of a sudden, we don't have control of things like we once thought we did, and now we're angry. We're angry at whatever it whatever it was that caused that bank balance to dip, or maybe it is something as simple as, as driving up Highway 54 or 74 and catching every single red light. Are you kidding me, Lord? Like, I had a plan to get from point A to point B by a certain time, and now I'm not gonna get there on time, and now every single traffic light just makes me angry. Or maybe you're like me. Maybe comfort is the root idol that drives you most to anger. I should have known, should have known uh, in the week I was gonna preach on anger that, that something would happen leading right up to the midnight hour. We drove back from our family vacation yesterday. Uh, we were down in the Gulf and normally that drive takes about six and a half hours. Yesterday, it was about eight and a half. Every, the wheels came off in every way you can imagine. I won't go into the sordid details, but we eventually found ourselves, uh, and many of you have experienced this, uh, that, that little stretch of land between uh, just north of Macon and the Griffin exit on I-75, you can't seem to make it through that without stopping your car down to zero miles per hour at some point. There's always a wreck, there's always something. We hit that. That was after some other things had, had uh, you know, completely thrown us off track. And, and why do I say comfort? I say comfort because 
this was my plan. The end of vacation, we were gonna get back by a certain time. We were going to unpack all of our bags by the time uh, we put the kids to bed. We were gonna eat some fresh seafood that we had bought on the way back, and we were gonna watch a good lighthearted comedy and laugh ourselves to the end of our vacation. Now with every single thing that happens on that drive back, that time is being threatened. It's like when you put your kids to bed and you have that window before you know you're gonna crash and burn and it's barely long enough to squeeze in a movie yourself and then your children don't go to bed on time, now all of a sudden, anger, right? The threat to your comfort. My goodness, I mean, we could just keep going, right? For hours on end, all the things that, that make our hearts angry. You, you, see what, you see what I'm saying? There's something underneath the emotion. Cain, why are you angry? What was threatened here? Approval, comfort, power, control, what is it? The, the gospel exhorts us to look deeper, to look within, to the sin underneath every sin, the sin of unbelief situated underneath every sinful emotion, the worship issue. And yet the gospel also exhorts us to look to Christ. And we should do that 10 times for every one that we look within. <laughs> because again, we, we become like that which we behold. We become like that which we befriend. That's why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What does that mean? It means that the, the alternative to sinful anger is not apathy. It's not indifference. It's a right emotional reorientation to the heart of God and the wonder of God. Again, Jonathan Parnell Killjoys, he says, the antidote to anger isn't placid stoicism or cool indifference. It's loving like crazy what is most lovable. The demise of sinful anger starts with our relentless pursuit to be enthralled by God, to be overcome with him, and then to be moved by him to value all that he values. We say no to sinful anger and its pattern of consuming us as we say yes to God's wonder and allow ourselves to be more and more consumed by him. Again, it's this idea of Christian hedonism the pursuit of happiness to the fullest extent, namely in the God who designed us to be happy in him, enthralled by him, overcome with him. It's what Thomas Chalmers referred to as the expulsive power of a new affection. It's a miracle that happens over and over and over and over and over again in the hearts of the saints. And with that expulsive power of a new affection comes the blessing of the Lord, a seat at the better table, so to speak, as we've been using that imagery from week one of this series, Lady Wisdom's house, her table. Listen to how the book of Proverbs describes that table as it pertains to anger. One, it's a table of true strength and might. Proverbs 16, 32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. That's mind boggling, isn't it? There's something about getting sinfully angry that feels like we have some sort of power in the moment. And yet the book of Proverbs says, no, you restrain that spirit and you have more power than, than those that could conquer an entire city. That's the kind of power 
It's the table of true knowledge and understanding, Proverbs 17, 27. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is not a fool, but a man of understanding. It's the table of true sensibility and glory, Proverbs 19, 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It's a beautiful table, isn't it? The Lord invites us to sit at the table of true strength and might, the table of true knowledge and understanding, the table of true sensibility and glory. And those are adjectives I functionally want for my life. And it comes as we repent of our distorted loves by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and get caught up all the more in the wonder of our enthralling God. It's the better table. And it's ours for the taking in Jesus Christ. Again, he's not only purchased our forgiveness, but our spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience. Coming back to Galatians 5. Yes, Paul begins with, now the works of the flesh are evident, and he includes fits of anger in this list. But he goes on to say, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the spirit, and if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells you. The fruit of the spirit is love. The fruit of the spirit is joy. The fruit of the spirit is peace. The fruit of the spirit is patience. The fruit of the spirit is kindness. Fruit of the Spirit is goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That as a Christian, you, you have the power of the Holy Spirit coursing through you that you might die to sin and live to Christ, that you might be long-fused to the glory of God, that you might be cool-spirited to the glory of God as he progressively conforms you and I to the image of his son, transforming us to use Paul's language into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And so I invite us to never stop refreshing ourselves on the wonder of the cross of Jesus Christ. That we would never stop reminding ourselves that we are no longer children of wrath if you're in Christ, but rather children of the living God that God is not some angry curmudgeon in the sky waiting to zap you with lightning bolts if you are united to Jesus by faith. That is not your position in Christ. And, and if you're like me, you'll forget it by the end of the day. So never stop preaching the gospel to yourself. But part of that glorious gospel is now the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead indwells you that you might progressively be conformed to the image of the one who shed his blood for you and might walk in deeper, more progressive holiness for your joy and the glory of God. It might be a long, grueling journey, if you're anything like me, but it's one that God promises to bring to completion and we can trust in him for that. And so I pray that we would never cease to look to the cross of Jesus Christ and that with that, that the kindness of the Lord would continue to lead us to repentance, that we might more embody that city on a hill beauty that Jesus describes, that light shining into the dark places, that kingdom essence.